So Easter is, and always has been since I can remember, my favorite day of the year. Uh, it trumps Christmas for me, I'll, even as a kid. It trumps my birthday. There's just something fresh and vibrant and exciting and new about Easter. And, and I've always been drawn to the Gospel of John's version of the resurrection story. And uh, I know the other ones are good as well, but John, for me, puts it in such a, a grand narrative that I find myself going there time and time and time again. And so this morning as we kick off a brand new four-week series that talks about what it means to walk with Jesus, just to be with Him in relationship, I'm again drawn to John's story of the resurrection and how he couches it in the bigger story of creation. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to John chapter 20. If not, fear not. We will have the words on the screen for you. This is what the Apostle John records. He says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Can you even imagine what that would have been like for her? So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put Him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he dared not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put Him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them the things that He had said to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace. Be with you. And after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed 
when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent Me, I am sending you. And with that, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Word of God for the people of God. John's story is incredible. Filled with tension and emotion and excitement and joy. And yet, if we just read that story and rip it out of the bigger narrative that John is telling in his whole Gospel, then we actually lose big parts of the storyline. You see, for John, the resurrection is the capstone of God's new creation plan. For John, the whole story of Jesus is rooted in the story of creation. It's all a creation story. That's why, for instance, at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, we read from chapter 20, but if you read from John chapter 1, verse 1, what does he say? He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The very same start as Genesis 1.1. This is a creation story in as much as it is a Gospel story about Jesus. And so it shouldn't surprise us then when we get to John chapter 20 that we're noticing some creation language. Did you notice that very first verse that we read? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, This is a new week of creation that's emerging. And very fascinatingly, all of this happens in what context? A garden. Is that coincidence? Of course not. John knows exactly what he's writing and how he's writing it. And what's more, when Mary Magdalene sees Jesus and doesn't recognize who he is, she errantly, or I would actually say correctly, refers to him as a gardener. Because ultimately, this is exactly what John wants to portray Jesus as coming to do. To once again bring us into this creation narrative. But anytime you invoke creation, you necessarily also invoke Genesis chapter 3, right? You can't get Genesis chapter 1 without Genesis chapter 3. Anytime you invoke creation and the beauty of of humanity created to coexist with God, to be His image bearers to the world, to to bring His glory to the ends of the earth, to tend to His creation, humanity as it was meant to be. Anytime you invoke that in the Scriptures, you're also having to bring with it Genesis chapter 3 that says humanity rejected that plan of God. That to be an image bearer wasn't enough Not just for Adam and Eve way back when, but if we're honest, you and I, if we're honest, it also hasn't been enough for us, has it? We, like them, would rather be like God than be an image of God. We would rather grasp for His power and His control and the glory that is rightfully His. We'd rather build for ourselves our own identity, our own significance, acceptance, and security. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us that when that happens, all kinds of chaos breaks forth in our world. 
we should never be surprised when we read headlines, not just of the world or the local newspaper, but the headlines that run through our mind about our own lives, that they involve chaos. So too in Genesis chapter 3, if you remember, two things significantly happen as a result of what the Bible often refers to as sin in the world. The first is shame. The human experience is clouded by the reality of shame time and time and time again. Why? Shame because of an awareness of who we are, that we actually were meant to be image bearers, not divine. And there's an understanding of our pursuits being less than and and all that it does to us. And so the very first thing that is said of man and woman in the garden after they've rejected God's plan for them is they looked at themselves and they were naked. Physically naked? I imagine so. But the language is much more distinct than that, isn't it? They became fully aware of their inadequacies. Are you fully aware of your inadequacies? Like, if you're anything like me, I'm super in touch with my inadequacies. I work super hard for no one else to be in touch with my inadequacies, right? That's what it means to be a Western American man, right? But you can relate to that experience. And then all of a sudden, the God who has walked necessarily hand in hand with them comes near them, and what do they do? They run and they hide. Why? Because they're ashamed. Not just of what they have done, but of who they are. God calls out for them, and the shame creates a boundary. Genesis chapter 3 in the creation account uses one thing as symbolic of shame in the human existence. You know what it is? Clothes. Now, I'm here to tell you, I'm happy you all wore clothes this morning. It was an excellent choice. And you're even more happy that I chose to wear clothes this morning. This is not a statement on modern fashion. It's just symbolically representative, is it not? Shame covers us up. But sin also leads to separation. We see it even in the shame that man and woman separated themselves from God. But ultimately, rebellion at its core, as I've tried to say, is a rejection of God Himself. And when you reject someone, you push them away. And so the Genesis 3 story ends with a separation between God and man. There's no longer humanity dwelling in the garden with God. It's just God in the garden now. And do you remember in Genesis chapter 3 what the one word or the picture, the symbolism is of that separation? Do you remember it? It's angels. Isn't that fascinating? That the angels in the garden are actually stationed as what amounts to security guards. So humanity can't get back in. There's separation and there's shame. And you're starting to think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did John just say in this resurrection passage? Did you notice it? What did they find at the tomb when they got there? What did Mary and Peter and the one who Jesus loved who can outrun Peter? By the way, that's John. He doesn't want to, doesn't want to talk about himself, but he just has to brag about himself in secret, right? What do they find when they get there? 
John isn't just recording these happenstances. These images have incredible symbolic meaning to the creation narrative he's telling. The first thing they find is clothes that are taken off. Do you notice it? What do they find they're laying? They say it like three or four different times. Like, we got it, John. The linens are off, right? No, he wants us to know. Separate the, the, the shame has been detached. Isn't that fascinating? What's more, who else do we find in the grave? An angel. Two of them, in fact. Just like we're guarding in the garden. And whereas in the garden they were saying, come no farther, you shall not pass, right? Now, all of a sudden, they're attempting to direct Mary and Peter and John to God, who is Jesus. And they're welcoming humanity back into the garden of creation. Isn't this an incredible story? Isn't this brilliant? Right? We'll get, we'll get British for just a minute. It's brilliant, isn't it? Incredible. It is a massive reversal of Genesis chapter 3 and an invitation for us as humanity to be transported right back into Genesis chapter 1. Is that we're allowed once again to be in the presence of God. There's no separation. The, the fact that the, the stone was rolled away was not just so Jesus could get out, though in fact it was. It is also significant that there is no longer a separation between that which was dead and that which is alive for anyone who's in Christ. You see this? The boundaries are broken. John is telling an incredible story of new creation. So what does this mean even for us as we consider this? How do we make sense of this even close to 2,000 years later? Well, as the story goes on, Jesus does two fascinating things to me, right? First of all, notice, this is interesting, right? John and Peter, who have been like front and center in the mission of Jesus all along, they're at the tomb too. But Jesus seems to me intentionally to let them go back, and then he seeks out Mary. Incredible, isn't it? And he calls her by name. And he says something fascinating. Did you catch it? He said, I will be ascending to my Father and your Father. Why is this so significant? Because in that culture, Mary, not only by her gender, but by her storyline, which was deeply broken and troubled, is elevated to the highest place. Do you see this? It's not just for James and Peter and John and the twelve, right? It's not just for the soon-to-be apostles. It's for everyone. Incredible. Even you and me. And then Jesus, a little bit later, shows up to where the disciples are gathering. This must have been even more terrifying than coming and finding an empty tomb, right? You're sitting there hanging out. Imagine this later, right? You're at Easter dinner with your family. And all of a sudden, boom, there's Jesus. Right? And he's like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, what just happened here? This is fascinating, isn't it? And the first thing he says to them is peace. Right? Like, no, we're super freaked out right now. This has been a crazy day. Peace is like the last thing on our agenda at this moment. He's not just saying peace in an American Western sense. The word is shalom. It's a Hebrew concept. What is he saying? What is he announcing? 
Shalom means when everything is in its right place again in the world. So Jewish people greet each other and depart from each other oftentimes by saying shalom. It's It's a prayer of promise. It's a prayer of hope. It's a prayer of expectation. It's not just a casual exchange. And Jesus is saying, I've done it. (laughs) I've set everything back in place again. Everything is in its right order again. In essence, you can stop vying for your own significance, security, or acceptance. You can plot another path away from the previous rejection of God's identity for you. You can reclaim it. You can reconnect it. I've created a path right back to it. There's no longer any boundary. No angels guarding. They're pointing now. No clothing protecting. It's open. We all know the truth. I know who you were. I also now know who you are in Christ. And no stone blocking the path between death and life. This is the gospel. But he doesn't stop there. He does something which is highly inappropriate, especially in a COVID-plagued world. He goes and breathes on them, right? This does not sit good with our modern sensibilities. I'm happy to tell you, even pre-COVID, I wouldn't like anyone getting in my face and breathing on me. It's creepy, and it's weird. And yet, John records it here. Why? This is creation language again. Do you remember how humanity was created in the garden? God breathed life into their nostrils. I hope this didn't happen right there, but it would have been symbolically appropriate for Jesus to put his mouth on their noses and breathe into them. Who knows? This is the imagery that Jesus is, is, Jesus is doing, the imagery that's recorded in John's Gospel. What's he saying? New life. New creation. And on the basis of this, the Apostle Paul would later write to the Corinthians... The only possible conclusion that any man or woman who is in Christ Jesus is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new is here. You and I have the opportunity, in fact, the invitation, that's what Easter is at its core, right? It's much more than this, but at its core for people like you and me, Easter is an invitation to come back into the garden, to dwell with God again, to be close to Him, for Him not to just be a far-off proposition, not to be an animistic thing you hope about, not to be someone who does or does not grant your desires, but to be someone who you're actually in uh, unbroken connection with, just like you were meant to be. So many of us, our lives either feel unfulfilled or only partially fulfilled, And that's because at some level we've rejected our created identity. Jesus says the path is clear. Here it is. Come. The Apostle Paul writes it like this when he writes to the church at Rome. And remember, when Paul's writing these letters, uh, he unanimously is writing to people who have already believed everything I've just told you. They've accepted this. But he knows, just like we have come to know, we need to receive the gospel day by day, don't we? As we get offline and out of kilter. In the same way we need to take our cars in for alignment sometimes because they're pulling left or they're pulling right. Our hearts and our souls, they sometimes pull left and they pull right, don't they? 
So Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. He says, momentarily. Okay, well, let me do it the old-fashioned way. I'll prove to you it's actually in the Bible. Here we go. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. In Romans 6, Paul is writing this epic segment about living a, a, living a higher life and a victorious life. This is what he says in, in verse 4. He says, We therefore are buried with Him, that is Jesus, through baptism into death. We remembered that on Friday, right? We're buried with Him in His death. Joined with Him in His death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Easter is an invitation for you to live a new life. Not the one you lived the past week. Not the one you've lived for the past 20 years. You are no longer defined by your past. You're not defined by your failures. You're not defined by your would have, could have, should haves. Nor are you defined by your inadequacies, the things that cause us to cover ourselves up. Easter announces that Jesus has bestowed on us all new creation. See, Jesus, in living a perfect life, could have avoided the cross and therefore would not have needed the resurrection. But he embraces it for one singular reason, to make new life possible for all of us. To give to us what he rightfully had. We call this grace. And on the basis of it, our only response is to order our lives accordingly. When we leave from here, lots of you are going to go have big meals, me included. We're going to be stuffed. The day is probably going to be fun. Uh, some of you have off on Monday. Most of you are headed back to work. Life is going to come at us again, isn't it? And I'm just not saying life is bad, but there's so much going on. And this world, whether intentionally or not, is going to continue to tell you, build your own identity. Be who you want to be. Build your own identity. The only way you're going to find meaning or purpose is to create your own identity. <clears throat> it's a lie. Easter is the central truth of the gospel. The resurrection trumps even the cross. This is who you are. If Jesus is raised from the dead, you can be nothing else. So live like it's true. Walk with Jesus. Be joined with Him. Find the peace and the hope and the love and the significance, the security, the acceptance that your heart beats so hard for. In the place that you were always created to find it. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll take some practical truths about what it means to walk with Jesus. And we'll engage them together and ask the question, okay, so how do we do this? How do we live like new people? What does it mean to be brought into the light? What does it mean to live honestly before God? How do we walk this out together? But unless and until 
we embrace the new creation story of Jesus as it was meant to be told, it will always only be a proposition or a religious striving instead of being who we are. Can I pray with you? Jesus, as we consider this story, I'm reminded of the story um, for only a couple of, a handful of days, whatever, before your death and resurrection. You were in Bethany and Lazarus, your good friend, had died. You arrived and the town was distraught. You, You were distraught. Through your power, you demonstrated what you'd ultimately come to do. You went to the grave where Lazarus was, Lazarus was sealed and buried and you yelled for him to come out. What a risky thing to do. And he did. He came running out of the grave. We acknowledge this Easter. That's what you're asking us to do. It's an invitation for us to come out of the grave. And then there's this part of the Lazarus story that often just kind of gets overlooked or as a, oh, duh, that's right. But you then say to Lazarus, take off your grave clothes. Again, symbolic of new creation. But also symbolic of being dead to the old and alive to the new. Jesus, would you teach us how to take off our grave clothes? We don't want to be people who just believe in our minds that this Easter thing is true. We want to believe it with our hearts, and we want to live on the basis of it. Thank you that in your death and resurrection, You have removed the stone that keeps the dead like us from true life. And you have reached out your hand to us. You have found us wandering, trying to make sense of this. You've called us by name, just like you did Mary, and said, listen, I'm going to the Father, who is also your Father. I'll show you the way. Might each of us take your hand this morning, I pray, in your holy name.